you are, and make a huge hold on this, that you have that hope that Jesus offers you in your heart. And when you have that hope in your heart, when you're trusting in Jesus, it, you can't keep it in. It just leaks out of you, and people begin to see it. They ask questions and so forth. Uh, we've seen how, you know, a few different things we've seen, just to kind of review. We have to be a church that's rooted in the gospel. We saw that. We can't ever just leave the gospel behind. It has to be every day in our hearts and minds. We also have to be a church that's together as a community. We saw that last week. Jesus does not save us to relate to him just one-on-one. But he saves us to be a people together with him. And this morning we're going to see God saves us to be on a mission. Uh, Our lives are not meant, they never were meant to be simply for ourselves. For the sake of us, for the sake of just our little nuclear family and nobody else. We were meant to be an outward facing people. Even from when God originally created us. He wanted us to see him as our reason for existence. And he wanted us to turn around and see each other as a reason for our existence, that we're supposed to pour out to each other. And so when Jesus was, uh, had raised from the dead and was talking to his disciples, he said, even as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And that idea of being sent, that's where we get the word mission from. The word mission means to be sent out. And so this morning in the passage that Bill read to us, and really in Chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, which is really what this sermon's based on. Don't get scared by that. (laughs) Uh, I had us just read a selection. The rest of those chapters are really just telling us in the details of our lives how to be a sent out kind of person. How to be a kind of person that believes God has, has given you a mission. We cannot, you see, we cannot be a church that's only about ourselves, isolated from our community and self focused about our own internal affairs. In this way, a church is very much like a, a lighthouse. Have you ever been to a lighthouse? Ever visited one? Uh, if you've ever visited one, maybe in St. Augustine or somewhere else, you know that, that you can visit one that's still active. There's some of those still around. They're still guiding people and rescuing people maybe even. But you can also visit other ones that are no longer active, but they're still there, and they're just lighthouse museums. They're just places you go to see what used to be. The function this building used to have. And isn't it sad, but isn't it true that churches often make that move from one to the other? We're made to be rescue stations. Places shining out the light and telling people, here's the guidance that God gives you when you're lost in the world. Here's the way to find hope and the way to find peace with God. The way to find meaning and purpose in your life. But instead of doing that, we we drop back to just becoming a museum of what we used to do. And people come in and see all the nice pictures hanging up on the wall and all the great stories of what used to be. And if we're going to be any different than that, we're going to need the Holy Spirit to work. We're going to need to give to, for him to give us three things we're going to see this morning. And you can see that in your worship folder. There are three things Peter points out that you absolutely need from God to live a life on mission. That we as a church need from God in order to live as a church on a mission in this community and city. The first one is we've got to be different in a certain way. We've got to be different in a certain way than our surrounding community. The second is we have to be different for a certain reason. We have to be different for a certain reason. And the third one, we have to be different by relying on a certain source of strength and a source of power, okay? Uh, Hopefully we can follow that this morning uh, as we go through our our verses. The first one is we have to be different in a certain way. I want you to notice uh, there in verse, verse 11... The way that Peter describes these Christians, he says, first of all, beloved, I really love you. I love y'all. 
But I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. You see what he called them there? He called them sojourners and exiles. Now what's a sojourner or an exile? A sojourner or an exile is an immigrant, right? Someone that's living in a place that's not really their true first home. And even though they live in this new place, they're not yet fully ready to give up their allegiance to their first home, right? They have this attachment to the place they came from that causes them not to want to let go of the the deep-seated cultural convictions that they have, the cultural practices that they have. If you look around all over the country there, and there has, has been all in the history of America, communities of immigrants, and sometimes, you know, communities of immigrants assimilate into the culture, and it's hard to tell where they even came from way back then. But then there are other places, like if you go to Chinatown in New York City, like it feels like you're literally in China, doesn't it? Because even though they're here and have integrated into life in many ways, they've kept their allegiance at their first, uh, their, their first place. They've kept their allegiance to China. You can go to many other places around the world and see this. What Peter is saying is, Christians, no matter if you're living in the place you were born, it doesn't matter that I was born in Bartow and I'm still living here, right? I'm still a sojourner and an exile where I live. Because my first culture, my first allegiance is not found here on this earth, but it's found in God's kingdom with God. I am a sojourner and I am an exile. Therefore, whenever the two conflict... Whenever my allegiance to God runs against my allegiance as an American, who do I choose? I better choose God, right? That's the calling of the Christian. Whenever my allegiance to God runs into conflict with the temptations that might be true of my work or my profession, I always have to choose God. And so on down the line. When my, my work as a husband or as a parent may conflict with my allegiance to God, I've, I've got to choose God. A sojourner and an exile in the world, a a stranger and an alien. I love that he uses those words because uh, way back in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, God used those same words to describe Abraham. Abraham, Father Abraham, right, had many sons, and we are one of them, and so are you. And, you know, all believers are, in a sense, sons and daughters of Abraham because Abraham at the very beginning of the story, sets the tone for what it's like to be a believer, what it's like to be a follower of God. And in that passage it says, he wandered through the land as a sojourner and an exile. In, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 it says that he and his sons, Isaac and Jacob, they acknowledged that they were strangers on the earth, it says, because they desired, listen to this, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly country. That's what it means. That's what Peter is saying. You and I, even if we live in the same place we were born, we have to be different. We have to stand out because our allegiance does not belong to anything but our connection to God through Jesus Christ. That's the way the Christian lives. Very distinct. But it's different in a certain way. I want you to notice that Peter doesn't say, I want you to be sojourners and exiles to abstain from drinking, cussing, chewing, and hanging out with those who do. He doesn't say that there in verse 11. He doesn't say, I want you to be sojourners and exiles who always vote Republican (laughs) or who always vote Democrat, whichever side you happen to be on, right? He doesn't say that. Why? Peter is not interested in instructing Christians to be different only on a superficial level. He's not so much concerned with what you eat, drink, wear. He's not so much concerned with 
even like the music you listen to or all the different ways that we normally think of Christians have to be different in that way. He says something far deeper, doesn't he? He says, I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And there you have it. That's how we have to be different. We have to be different at the very core of who we are. Uh, the passions of the flesh, the way that's used in the New Testament, it describes that what sinful natures, all of our natures are sinful, what our sinful natures desire most naturally, what we go after most naturally. What does the Bible say that is? Big word, idolatry. <laughs> our hearts go after all these ways of trying to replace God. God created us, and yet instead of wanting to serve God and live for the God who made us, we want to turn and serve and live for the created thing. Namely, to kind of cut to the chase, we want to put ourselves, self, capital S, me, myself, in the place of God. That's what the passions of the flesh are. And Peter's saying that's how you and I, that's how this church has to be different from the world. Not just superficially, but we have to actually say no to the over-desire that's in our hearts naturally without Jesus, that's in our hearts for created things and to replace God with myself. Now that's radical. I don't know if you see that as radical, but it's radical to live in a world where really nobody is telling themselves no. And we are a people that by God's grace working in our hearts, we're learning how to question ourselves and to tell ourselves no. It's the mantra of our society. If you want it, if it's a desire of your flesh, if it's a desire of your heart, it must be okay to have it. It must be okay. In fact, the wrong thing is, is to block someone from getting what they really want in their heart. That means you're a bigot. <laughs> that means you're a hater. That means you're standing in my way, right? When I don't get, when I, when, I, when I block myself, that means I'm just repressing myself. You know, I'm just a prude, you know, pushing down my true self down deep and just pretending, right? Our society says that. It's even in our children's movies. Uh, my kids love the movie Frozen. I do too. It's a great movie. But Elsa, you know, when she says, let it go, that's what that whole song's about. It really hits the chord of our culture, doesn't it? No right or wrong, no rules for me. I don't know all the words to it, but you, you know where I'm going with this. I'm just going to let it go. You can't tell me. You can't tell me not to freeze the kingdom. <laughs> right? Nobody can hold me back. And Elsa lets it go. And so in our culture, why is that song so popular? Why do we like it so much? Not only is it catchy, and it is, but it also hits that chord. Of course, something deep in me, if it's deep in me, it has to be right. It has to be expressed. It has to get out. But here's the wisdom of the Bible. The wisdom of the Bible is those things that you desire in your heart might actually be the things that, what does it say, wage war against your very soul. It might not be good for you to get what you think you want. Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> it might not be good for you to express who you think you are down deep inside. It might be that who you are deep inside actually needs to be changed for your life to be healthy. And to give Disney credit, I think they show that in the movie Frozen. Because when Elsa lets it go, is it good for everybody? It's bad for her. It turns her heart cold. The whole kingdom is frozen sort of in this solid winter. And so it is in our world and so it is in our society. Everything frozen over, isn't it? Because like we talked about last week, we're playing kill the man with the ball. <laughs> Every man or woman for him, him or herself 
trying to follow out what's deeply in my heart. Peter says, no, be different. Be sojourners and exiles. Be a people that actually say, wait a minute, what I feel might not be the best thing. And instead of listening to my own heart all the time, I need to turn my heart up and listen to what God says. That's the difference. Do you see how that's different than just the superficial, we don't drink, cuss, or chew, or dance, or any of those things? Those are superficial. And yes, the gospel has something to say about all those areas. But the first thing that needs to be changed is deep. Far deeper than any of those superficial things. Well, anyway, the second thing is not only do we, to be on mission, not only do we have to be different for a certain, in a certain way, but we have to be different in a cert, for a certain reason. And Peter goes on to describe that in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now this goes right against, I think, very common assumptions that we all have. Uh, Next week, you know, when lots of different people, maybe people we've never met before, are starting to come to our church, there's going to be a lot of people who, who would say, I'm not really religious, or I don't really think I'm a Christian, or I'm not sure that I am. Uh, very, the, all of those folks, very welcome in here. But they're going to bring this point of view, I think, that actually we're not too far different from, this point of view that Christians are different so that they can be isolated and unconcerned with the world outside. Just so that they can kind of have their own, what we call a holy huddle. Where we get together and just encourage each other by our own goodness. So that we can go out into the world and have another great week and come back again to our holy huddle next week. That's the way many people in our community view Christians in the church. Not very different than the way we do, is it? If you regard yourself as a Christian, you might also think, hey, to be different than the world means we have to build high walls around our church, around my family. I have to build a fortress so as not to be contaminated, (laughs) so that my children would not be contaminated by those people out there that are so different than us. I want you to see how both sides there are wrong. Because Peter says you ought to be different so that you can keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's not that we throw up walls to keep from being contaminated. It's also not that we just have our holy huddle and everybody is so happy because we are you know, taking care of our own affairs. It's that we are right smack dab in the middle of the world, full of the passions of the flesh, nevertheless, by God's grace, living differently. So that, here, here's the catch, so that we can make a difference in that world. We have to be different for a certain reason. We have to be different to make a difference. We have to be different in order to show people there's a better way. And so he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. As a Christian, it should not be the case that you have no meaningful relationships with non-Christians. It should not be the case that you want to isolate your family from every non-Christian person around you. Because how in the world can you do 1 Peter 2.12, if that's the case? Keep your conduct among them honorable, so that you would benefit them. So that when they speak against you as evildoers when they assume all the nasty things that they may assume about Christians, they would see by your life they were wrong. Christians really aren't just all self-righteous. Christians really aren't just all hypocritical. Christians really aren't just all stuck on themselves and only focused on their own needs and desires. Instead, 
Christians are showing good deeds so that other people, it says, would see them and not give praise to the Christian, but glorify God. Especially glorify God on the day of visitation. Now there's something mysterious there. What is that day of visitation? That, I believe, refers to the final judgment. And so what this is saying is, as Christians, we ought to want to be different in the world so as to help people in our community around us prepare for the day of judgment. So that on that day, it would not be a day of fear and terror for them, but that that day would be a day of, of reception, of, of acceptance by God, a day when they actually glorify God because they are God's children just like you are as a believer. In other words, we ought to go out to give away to other people the blessings that God has poured, poured into our lives. Which fits everything in the Bible, doesn't it? God never blesses somebody just for them to keep it and to hold it and to stay put. When God pours his blessings on anyone in the Bible, go to any story in the Bible, I, I dare you, go look it up and read it. God blesses them so that they would get out and give it away. And that's the kind of different we have to be. Different looking towards our, our neighbors and saying, hey, we believe there's a day of judgment. We believe without a day of judgment, this world has no meaning. It's every, it really is every man or woman for their, themselves. There is no true justice. But because there is a day of judgment, life has purpose. Life has plot. Life has value. We're headed somewhere. And I, and I want you to know, I, I didn't know where I was headed. And I found it in Jesus. Would you like to know? Would you like to also have some light shined out onto your life to see the way so that you could glorify God on the day of visitation? Our difference is for a purpose. Driven by compassion because we know we have been rescued from a pretty nasty fate on the day of judgment. And so just like when you're riding down the road and you see a cop on the side of the road and you know they're writing tickets, you flash your lights to people coming the other way, don't you? If you're a good citizen. <laughs> You flash your light. You warn them. It's coming. The day of judgment. <laughs> I, I passed by and didn't get a ticket. Now you can too, right? Now if we'll do that for something like a $100 ticket or whatever it is, maybe more. If we'll do that for something that small, won't we do that for the day of God's judgment? Don't we want to turn our lives inside out and open ourselves up and not be closed off so that people would have the opportunity to see what we have seen. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we saw it because somebody else opened up their life. If somebody else had not gotten out and given away the blessing of God to us, we would not know it. We would not have any kind of relationship with God. And so just like, you know, to go on a positive side uh, about police officers and EMT, you know, why do they dress up in uniforms? Is it just so that they would feel better about themselves? <laughs> Is it just so that everyone would praise them and clap for them? No, it's so that everyone would know that person is equipped and ready and trained to help. And that's the same thing with the Christian. Why are we different? Why do we say no to the passions of the flesh? So that people would identify us and know that person can help. That person can show me the way out of my hopelessness. That person can guide me into a way of life that makes sense, that really satisfies and fulfills me in a way that selfishness never could. That's the job of every single person in this room who's a believer. It's a job of every single church in this world to be that kind of police station of the soul. 
to shine out and say, we've got help, we've got hope. Come in and find it. In the earliest days of the church, uh, like the first few hundred years, to become a Christian meant basically you were probably going to either get disowned by your family, you were going to be beaten or put in jail, or you were going to die. One writer wrote this book, it was called, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? <laughs> Based on that fact. And he said, here's why. Because Christians created what he called a unique social project, which, you know, to translate that into normal language, a beautiful community, a beautiful lifestyle, where not that we did weird things, but that we did the ordinary things we raised our kids, we loved our families, we went to work and did an honest day's work. We did the normal things, but we did them for different reasons. We did them from a different motivation. And because that community was beautiful, people were, their hearts were open to the gospel. And they were willing even to be disowned and even to be killed in order to be a part of it. That has to happen again today. <laughs> that has to happen again here, in this town, in this city, in this area. That's what we're hoping to do. So not only do we have to be different in a certain way, we have to be different for a certain reason. But the last thing, we have to be different by relying on a certain power source or source of our strength. In other words, we can't do it ourselves. We can't make ourselves this kind of different, amen? I mean, I don't know about you, but have you tried to say no to the passions of your flesh just on your own? <laughs> How did that work? How successful were you? No, you have to have a more explosive power than your own power enter into your life in order to make you different. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 13. You'll see Peter beginning to show this to us. He says, first, look how amazing this life change is. Now, who is there to harm you, he says, if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if we're living such good lives, why do people persecute us? But yet they still do. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This is an amazing thing that he just said. I don't know if you caught it, but he said, look, even by living a, a life through the power of God, that's good, that people are attracted to, you're still going to suffer. You're still going to be mis mistreated. But even though you're harmed and hated and mistreated at the same time, you know, you're blessed. And at the same time, you know you don't have to be afraid and you do not have to be troubled by it. Did you see that? That's an amazing thing. That expresses just how far God's power, God, God's power alone to change our life can go. It can make us a people who suffer and yet at the same time say, I'm blessed. And really mean it. And say, I'm not swallowed up by fear. I'm not swallowed up by trouble not swallowed up by anxiety and by my circumstances. Instead, my heart is fixed on the blessing that God has secured for me. And that's a blessing that can't be taken away from me. Now, we see it all the time when, when a team wins the game, they put the microphone in front of the athlete. I want to thank God because we won. <laughs> but do you ever see that when they lose, right? Do you ever see someone, hey, I just want to thank God for the loss today because I'm blessed <laughs> and I'm not afraid and I'm not troubled. You never see it. And if, and if we can't even do that from losing a ball game, can we do that when the circumstances, the true circumstances of our lives really go wrong? I'm telling you, the only way we can is if we have this miracle happen. 
And when this miracle happens, people are inevitably drawn to it. It says there, uh, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Do you notice what he's saying? He's saying, your life is going to be so different. People are going to ask you how it works. <laughs> You're going to be so uncommonly uh, assured in the midst of suffering and trouble. Circumstances are not going to overwhelm you so much that people are going to actually come up to you and say, okay, you got to explain to me, how do you have hope? How is your hope so much greater than my hope? Why are you not freaking out when everybody else is freaking out? Explain it. And then at that moment, that's our opportunity. That's our chance to be courageous and to say, you know what, let me tell you a story that has changed my life. It's the story of Jesus. It's the power of Christ coming into the world, dying on the cross, rising again, flooding my life with his Holy Spirit, exploding the gospel in me to totally rearrange my entire heart. That's the way that I have the gospel. People are asking questions, and I'm ready for the answer to show the gospel is the true answer. And so the question for us is, are we living a life that's such a life that people would ask questions about how it works? Do we know that miraculous life change that would cause people to say, how do you do it? Or is our life fairly like the people around us? Is our life pretty much just maybe superficially different? But at the deepest part of who we are, we're also chasing the passions of the flesh. Oftentimes that's true of us as Christians. Our lives aren't raising questions. And so when we start talking about the gospel, people turn us off. I, I think it makes sense why they do. <laughs> You're answering questions that they're not asking because your life hasn't caused them to ask it. Isn't that right? On the other hand, though, if our lives are raising questions, we, we sometimes struggle with not having the boldness or the courage to be able to actually say, hey, here's the reason. Because the cross is offensive. Talking about Jesus is offensive. I mean, we're, you're telling people there's only one way to God. That's offensive. And so we lack the courage or the boldness. We have to have both. We have to have the kind of explosive love in our hearts that makes us live in such a way that people want to ask questions and at the same time have the courage to say, it's only through Jesus that I can have this kind of life. It's only through Jesus that, that my life has been changed. And so that's what Peter says. He says the way that the power source of this difference that we have to have is Christ alone. He says there, um, in your hearts, in verse 15, in your heart honor Christ alone as holy. Translation, treasure Jesus above anything else in your life, in the very heart of your hearts, let Jesus be your treasure more than anything else. Let your allegiance belong to Jesus more than it belongs to any other allegiance. And then he goes on to say, make a defense for the hope that is in you. Do you see when Jesus is your treasure in your heart, the hope that he gives is also in your heart. But if Jesus is not the treasure in your heart, it should not be a surprise that you don't have the hope that he gives. Right? If Jesus is your treasure, the hope is there, and people can see it, and they will ask if Jesus is not your treasure, it's not a surprise that you don't have the hope, but we can. The way we do it is what Peter says, honor him as holy, learn how to treasure him, learn how to listen to him. And so Peter models that for us. 
He says in verse 17, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then he shows us how. Verse 18, For, because, on account of, Christ himself has suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, you have to learn. We all have to learn how to be people who treasure Jesus by looking at two things, Peter points out. First, look at Jesus' love. Know how much he loves you. And second, look at Jesus' power. And know how his power cannot be withstood by any other rival power in the world. So what do I mean by his love? He suffered for sins. Why is that love? Because they were not his own sins. He suffered for our sins, it says. The righteous, that's Jesus. He never did any sin. He never deserved to die. He suffered for the unrighteous. That's me. (laughs) That's you. If you're a believer in Christ, that means that Jesus came all the way down, like we sang in the song. He did not want heaven without us. And so he brought heaven down. He put himself in our place, and he he was killed on our behalf so that we could have access to God. Now, that's a love unlike any other. When our heart gets so driven by the passions of the flesh, here's what we can bring in to kill those passions. Because has my my reputation or my possessions or my position or whatever it is that I'm worshiping besides God, have those things loved me like Jesus loves me? And the answer over and over is no. Can those things really bring me back to God as it says? No. At best, they might give me a few passing pleasures here and now that will quickly pass away, and I'll leave it all behind one day when it's all over. But for Jesus, he brings me to God. That's something that can never be taken away from me. And for him to do that, for him to be willing to do that, his love for us must have been immense. Uh, One writer says that at at the cross, we see it, Jesus hanging on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, was the gushing forth of the almost exploding heart of God. That's how much he loved us. He had so much love that it was exploding out and the cross was the explosion. But not only love, Christ has power. It says he went into the grave, he died in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit. In other words, he went right into death and he beat death at his own game. You know, he he showed death where to get off. (laughs) And he shares with every believer this victory over death so that when I get afraid of, of making a stand for Christ when I get afraid of really saying no to myself when I really don't want to, I can know, wait a minute, my fear, whatever it is I'm afraid of, can't stand up against the resurrection power of Jesus. The power of Jesus that conquers death forever that simply cannot be reversed and cannot be undone. Whatever circumstance goes up and down in my life, no bad can outweigh the good he's won me. He's loved me like no other, And he's more powerful and he shares that power with me, more powerful than any other. And so how does that change me? Because I can say these three things. Listen listen to these things. I've done nothing. I've done nothing good. He has done everything. And I benefited in every way. And so now I'm willing to do anything for him. Do you see that? That's the move of the gospel. That's the way that the gospel gets in your heart. Jesus is treasured, and it explodes in your life. I've done nothing good. 
Jesus has done everything for me, and I benefited in every way, so now I'm willing to do anything for him. There's absolutely nothing that I would say no to because of the way he's loved me. When you really love somebody, you don't say no. <laughs> you want to please them. You desire. It's the, it's the deepest desire of your heart. That's how the gospel changes. Passions of the flesh to passion for God, passion for Jesus. That's why we really believe we're called to be on a mission in our city because so many people need that kind of heart change. Isn't that right? And we believe that heart change is absolutely, positively possible. Positively possible. Uh, I watched a movie at the theater this week called um, The Man Who Invented Christmas. Anybody else seen that? Nobody. Okay. I was only four, I was only four people in the theater, uh, one of four. Um, but it, but I, I was drawn to it because it's about Charles Dickens, the writer of A Christmas Carol. And it was the story behind the story, why he wrote it. And I, I love, I mean, I'm a nerd. I love literature. I mean, I, I was my major in, in college. And so I wanted to see this. And it was fascinating because it showed how he wrote that story just as a way to show change is really possible. Because A Christmas Carol is, is a story of change, isn't it? Scrooge, this guy's a jerk. <laughs> This guy's a miser. This guy's very miserable and just hates really himself. He doesn't really know that, but he really hates himself. He hates everybody. It's terrible. He's totally miserable. And Dickens, in, in the movie, The Man Who Invented Christmas, he also is struggling with ways that he himself can't change. And he's so frustrated that he can't change his own heart. He can't change his own life situation. And so he writes this story trying to explore the idea, can someone as bad as Scrooge, can someone as bad as me change? And, of course, you've all seen The Christmas Carol, at least the one with Mickey, right? <laughs> Y'all know Scrooge, Uncle Scrooge, <laughs> he changes. He changes. Well, how does he change? Same way we change by the gospel. He saw his own doom. Remember? Whose grave is this? It's yours, Ebenezer. <laughs> he saw his own doom. He saw another chance, a second chance, and he woke up a new man. That's what happened to Scrooge. It's what happened, according to this movie, to Charles Dickens. It can happen to us. It only happens through Jesus. He shows us our doom. I've done nothing. I can do nothing. There's a second chance. He's done everything so that I benefit in every way. I wake up a new man. I'm willing to do anything. Never saying no to God. Going out in absolute, unhindered mission wherever God leads. Is that right? Let's pray this morning. And uh, thanks so much for paying attention over these past several weeks in this series. I hope that this idea of hope and what it means to live as people of hope from 1 Peter has encouraged your heart. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your word. So many riches here, more than we could possibly ever mine out. Uh, but Lord Jesus, thank you that you've given your Holy Spirit to help us mine, and I pray that you would please uh, dress up our hearts, adorn our hearts today with all the jewels that we found in, in this passage, uh, that, Lord, we would be a people who um, truly change from the deepest part of who we are, that like a lighthouse, you know, we would not be just a museum, but a really active lighthouse showing our whole community, you can change, you need to change. Uh, a day of visitation is coming. You need to change, and you can through Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would fill our hearts with this message, especially this week as we get ready for our very first public 
uh, worship service next Sunday. Lord, fill each of us with that love, that humble love, and that courage that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.